The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. In 1927, the novelist E.M. Forster published a work called Aspects of the Novel, in which he detailed a theory that caught on with creative writers all over the world. Some characters in novels are round, he noted, and others are flat. Round characters are everyday people in real life. They make decisions, they're capable of change, and they're capable of surprising us. Flat characters, on the other hand, are organized around a single belief or characteristic. They often don't change much in the course of a novel. They enter the stage, play their specific part, and exit. That sounds like a flaw, but Forster's point is that it isn't necessarily. Flat characters can be useful in something as complex as a novel. These are characters who don't need reintroducing. They don't require a lot of space, and best of all, they can help to put in motion the dilemmas and resolutions that the round characters will experience. Flat characters get the job done, rather like character actors or extras in a movie, and they might even at times be some of our favorite or most inspiring figures. But they don't move us the way that round characters do. Round characters invite us to see the world as they do. They animate our emotions and feelings. They are the reason why we read novels. Which brings us to our guest today, Dr. Tara Bynum. There's a danger that arises when we read about historical figures, a risk that we reduce them to flat characters. We find someone known for their compassion and we turn them into a saint, full stop. We take someone known for a scientific discovery and reduce them to someone working in a laboratory, and only that. And we take someone who was a victim or oppressed, and we turn their lives into a story of unmitigated suffering. Suffering may have been a big component of that life. It might be what we most value about their experience, the feature most prominent or most compelling, or that offers us the most lessons today. That's fine for a start, perhaps, but if we only focus on that, to the exclusion of everything else, we won't fully appreciate who those people were. In effect, we take round, real-life people and turn them into flat characters. And that would be a shame, because the people we're going to be talking about today, four of the great minds of the 18th and 19th centuries, lived incredible lives and have more to offer than flatness. We should try to view them with as much roundness as we can, because they deserve it, and because we deserve it too. If we want to be human, we have to explore humanity with as much depth and complexity as we can. Dr. Tara Bynum did this with four lives of early black Americans, canonical figures, writing from the era of slavery, either slaves themselves or only nominally free. She has gone beyond the usual, the narratives we might project backwards onto them, looking for moments that we might overlook and those we might not expect. She'll tell us all about what she found today on The History of Literature. 
we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining us today. We have a great guest. I tried to set this up at the beginning. Maybe I did the job. Maybe not. I hope we have properly set the stage for this project and why I found it so fascinating. I like getting complex. I like contradictions. I like learning about people. Well, look, I'm trained in literature, so I appreciate it when a character is round. Forster has often been viewed as his book, Aspects of the Novel, has often been viewed as sort of a how-to manual for novelists, but it's a how-to manual for readers as well. Look for rotundity. Appreciate those authors who give it to you. Those are the characters you'll truly learn from. That doesn't mean you can't learn from the the prominent features of flat characters, too. It doesn't mean you have to take some scientist and not consider their science at all. Imagine if you were studying Siberians, let's say. And so the first thing you want to know, not being a Siberian yourself, is how do you deal with the cold? What is that like? Here's a newspaper headline on the Siberian cold. This is from USA Today. It says, 88 degrees below zero is even colder than Mars. (laughs) Whoa. What is that like to live in those conditions as a human being? What is it like to not know a hot, sunny beach? To have never felt that. What's it like to bundle up each day and walk through very cold conditions, seeing snow the way some of us might see trees and grass? And we'd say, if you really want to understand the cold and, and dealing with the cold and, and its effect on human beings, you'd look, to an, you'd look to an Inuit or a Siberian. I'm from Wisconsin, and we scoff at people in California who say, oh, it was 40 degrees last night, quite cold. I wore a sweater, and I still felt chilly. And we in Wisconsin say, my goodness. We had two feet of snow yesterday. We can't go outside. It's 60 below wind chill. And even so, even with that Wisconsin bias, if I was going to read about someone enduring the cold, I'd turn to that book by that Siberian and say, oh, yes, got it. That's really living the cold. But here is an idea that I want to leave you with. What if... What if I want to to give to you? We're just getting started. I'm not leaving you with anything. Here's an idea I want you to think about. What if in that book, the Siberian also happened to mention the times that she felt warm? Wouldn't that be interesting and important? That might teach us something too, right? About the nature of being cold and being warm. We have the cold, that's the extreme that she's living through, that's the overwhelming experience from my perspective, but knowing that she has in her life moments of warmth. Well, that could teach me something about her, about the nature of warmth, about being a real human being. If warmth is part of her world and I want to understand her world and her, then I should want to know all about her being cold and her being warm. Just as with a historical figure who lived on this planet and shared, has shared that experience across centuries and geographical boundaries with us, I want to know how that person loved and hated, how they rose and fell, how they worshipped, and how they doubted. 
I want to know what they asked and what they answered. That's the spirit with which we want to approach Dr. Tara Bynum's work, I think. Because in some ways it might be counterintuitive at first. She has located in these authors, all of them black, all of them writing from an America where slavery was entrenched and had been so, and for all these people knew, would forever be. They all died decades before slavery had ended. And yet, Dr. Bynum has located moments not just of anger and despair, as we might expect, but pleasure. Moments of pleasure, specifically in connection with reading. Reading was an act of resistance for these people at this time. We know that, and we value that aspect of it. And yet, we overlook sometimes that reading also brought pleasure, and it reduces their inner lives to ignore that part. The danger, which I feel maybe because of who I am, is that there's a long tradition of minimizing the sufferings of slavery and saying, well, life was good for the slaves. They were happy and well taken care of and so on. You've seen textbooks in the news, probably, if you haven't experienced them in your real life, and they are appalling. That's not what we're talking about, obviously. We're talking about taking four people for writers and seeing them on their own terms with all the complexity that they as human beings had, not limiting ourselves to viewing them with our 21st century viewpoint and or agenda. It's about listening to them, describing their moments of joy, their moments of hope, their moments of pleasure, and learning what we can from those moments, what those moments meant to them as well as learning from their moments of struggle and sorrow. Or maybe I should say, we're trying to view the moments of pleasure in the context of their struggles. Okay, so that's what we have in store for us today. The four Americans in Dr. Bynum's book are Phyllis Wheatley. You might be familiar with her. We've done an episode on her as well. We might have done two not sure. In the archives, there's at least one episode on Phyllis Wheatley. She was born in Africa in 1753. She was enslaved and sold and wound up in Boston, named after the slave ship that had transported her to America, the Phyllis. She was educated, which was rare, and she thrived, and she wound up as the first American, African-American author of a published book of poetry. Her poetry, so good, it earned her the admiration of George Washington and inspired Thomas Jefferson to do mental backflips to try to try to square her poetry with his idea of an inferior race. We talk about that in the Phyllis Wheatley episode. John Marant was born, or Marant, was born in 1755 in New York City. He moved to the South, escaped to the Cherokee for two years, then he allied with the British during the Revolutionary War and moved to London. He died young, age 35. Wheatley, by the way, Phyllis Wheatley only lived to be 31. John Marant died at age 35. He wrote a memoir published as a narrative of the Lord's wonderful dealings with John Marant, a black. And he delivered a famous sermon, which was also published, which noted the equality of human beings in God's eyes. Number three, James Albert Yukasaw Groniosa was born in 1705 in what is now Nigeria. He was the grandson of a king, 
it was said, but he was taken by an ivory merchant and wound up purchased by an American who took him to New York. He wound up in England, where he became the first published African in Britain, thanks to his autobiography, which was published in 1772. He was also a Christian minister, like John Merritt. And finally, David Walker is the most recent of the four. He was born in 1796. His father was enslaved, but his mother was free, a status that David Walker inherited. He is famous now for his abolitionist writings, including his work, An Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, which called for black unity and a fight against slavery. That was published in 1830, which is also the year that David Walker died at the age of 33. Those are the four, all of them having written seminal texts, all of them enslaved or only nominally free. Dr. Tara Bynum will join us next to help us put their lives and their works in context. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Dr. Tara Bynum, Assistant Professor of English and African American Studies at the University of Iowa. She's here today to discuss her book, Reading Pleasures, Everyday Black Living in Early America. Dr. Bynum, welcome to the History of Literature. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. This is so exciting. So before we get to the four individuals that you focus on, I feel like it's important to kind of set out the general approach you're taking. I think a lot of books... You know, the introduction kind of summarizes each of the chapters. But in your book, I felt like it's important to lay some groundwork for the approach you take, because I think it's a little different from how other books work. So maybe we could start with that. And if you just wanted to describe for us the approach that you decided to take toward these four individuals that you focus on. Yes. So the four authors that I'm interested in are Phyllis Wheatley, John Merritt, James Albert, Ukasaw, Graniosa, and David Walker. And they are four, I would say, kind of canonical writers when scholars think of early African-American literature. Their work is easy to find, easy to access. And I think in that way, there was something kind of very easy about exploring their work. But where I do something different is that I was much more interested in thinking about 
these early African-American writers within the context of how they may enjoy their lives. In that way, I was looking for friendship. I was looking for space. I was looking for kind of other ways that they might have demonstrated what they enjoyed doing or how they felt good. And, you know, here's the catch is that, oh, I think three of the four writers are writing in the 18th century. There's one from the 19th century. So if you know anything about U.S. history, the time when Black people in particular are enslaved. And I Mm. think the presumption, Mm -hmm. the prevailing presumption is that where there's enslavement, there's nothing but terror, hardship, and sadness. And I guess I wanted my work to say, yes, all of those things exist. And also, like, how do you keep living? Mm. And I think that, or how did they keep living? And I think that they keep living by figuring out how to access that joy, how to access those pleasures, and they talk about it. Right. Now, there's a danger there, which you acknowledge in the introduction as well, that often there's been a kind of uh, counter-narrative that we see in textbooks and so on that sort of says, well, you know, life wasn't so bad for the slaves, and and they were uh, happy, and and this was actually good for them. They were well taken care of, and so on. And and you're clear to point out that's not what you're saying. You're not trying to minimize the, the horrors of slavery as an institution, but to kind of try to see these people as individuals in the full spectrum of humanity, which would include not just frustration and and despair and and anger, but would include hope or faith or excitement or enthusiasm and joy and just being open to the possibility that these four would have had lives that express those qualities and characteristics as well. That's right. And I, you know, I, I get here to this line of thinking, actually thinking about myself. So mm-hmm. I am a Black woman from the United States. Family has largely been from the United States, to my knowledge. And, you know, I think that the earliest versions of this kind of research emerge out of the question, kind of how did I get here? You know, so if I am here on this earth as a Black woman in 2023, Given the number of Black people that precede me, if life is so very difficult, how do I get here? And then, you know, I think from there, you know, another iteration of the question that, you know, I had a grandmother that I grew up with who was born in 1918. I think that I could tell a version of her life that could be mired in kind of the difficulties of being a Black woman born in 1918, coming of age during segregation and the Great Depression in Maryland, and having to kind of navigate that landscape and have children. I can tell a version of her story that centered the difficulty of her life, but that's not necessarily the woman that I knew. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not the grandmother that I remember. You know, the grandmother that I remember is one who made a fantastic corn pudding every Thanksgiving and Christmas. You know, the grandmother that I knew had kind of pet names for her grandkids. You know, I think that there's, that that's the woman that I knew. So I, I guess when, when thinking about these kind of early African-American writers, I guess I wanted to see if there was anywhere in their writing where they, they offered me a glimpse of something other than what I would say we are concerned about, which is, which is the, the matter of slavery or freedom. And I think what I found was that they do actually talk about so much else in a way that I think that if we 
kind of slowed down enough to think about what it means to be human, you'd come to expect, you'd come to expect that Phyllis Wheatley would be pleased to hear from her friend and say so. And in that, you know, kind of admitting that she's pleased to hear from her friend, there isn't also kind of the additional burden of like, oh, you know, we're Black again today. Like, that's not, that's not there because that's not a thing, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I see what you mean. And if you think about, you know, two people who were growing up at the same time in the same family, even, we would expect them to approach life differently and to kind of insist, you know, from the vantage point of, of 200 years later to say, well, we must know how they would think about the world and how they would approach just the day-to-day job of living would be to minimize the differences that we know that people have, that everybody is is coming into this with a different set of, of thoughts and ideas and expectations and experiences. And what I value about your book is that you're kind of trying to present people in this fuller version of who they were. Yeah. And I think that in trying to get at the fullness, that doesn't necessarily mean that they delighted in their social condition. Right. I think it, it just means that there's more to their living than just being defined by yeah, their social condition. Yeah. So I don't know if this is going to take us into the four individually in order to answer this question, but I'm I'm curious because each of the four is, as you say, well known for you know, one work or or a, a set of works. Were you reading them, those works more closely, or were you looking outside to letters or other writings in order to kind of find these instances of pleasure? So for David Walker, John Marin, and James Albert Ukasaw Graniosa, I I use the the work that they are most known for. So mm-hmm. for Graniosa and Marin, it's the it's their narrative. Um and for David Walker, it's David Walker's appeal, um, a pamphlet. And it's still a sweetly that I would say that I might approach differently because I'm very concerned about her letters. Mm. Um and less concerned with her poems. The poems have their their place of course in the in the chapter, but it's really the letters that kind of got me interested in Wheatley because Vincent Coretta in his Penguin edition has an appended to the the back of the book kind of after the the poems. And I remember being in graduate school, kind of familiarizing myself with the poems and reading the poems. And then I get to the back of the book and I'm like, oh, she wrote letters too? And, And there hasn't been nearly as much engagement with the letters as text. So even though they are kind of available in as much as they are in print and in print and still kind of currently in print, I have not seen as much work on the correspondence. Catherine Clay Bessard writes about it. Alexis Pauline Gums does as well. So I think that there's work emerging, but I, I'm here for the letters is what I'm trying to say. Right. And what did you find in those letters? So I think the big find in those letters is that Phyllis Wheatley is talking to another Black woman who's enslaved at a point named Uber Tanner. And Uber Tanner and Phyllis Wheatley exchange, I think, seven extant letters. There may be more than that, but there's seven that are extant, six of which 
are at the Massachusetts Historical Society. And I think that what is so striking to me about that is, you know, it's not often the case that in the 18th century, we have correspondence between two Black women and two Black women who are friends. And in that capacity, they are kind of sharing their lives with each other. And I think there was something very powerful to me about that relationship, that friendship. You know, at some point, Uber Tanner is helping to sell books. At another point, Catherine Childs pointed out to me, Wheatley gives a set of her proposals to Uber Tanner, presumably to read. There's a lot there. And they're doing this while Revolutionary War, at least among the extant letters, while the Revolutionary War is picking up. So the first letter that Sixan is in 1772 and the last one is in 1779. So to me, it's kind of a big deal. And I guess the real big deal is that they are living kind of where the revolution is getting fomented. Phyllis Wheatley is in Boston and Uber Tanner lives in Newport, Rhode Island. Yeah. Was Wheatley excited about the war? Was she anxious? Did she view it as that it had potential for good things to come? Or what was her attitude toward the war? So I think the war is terrifying Yeah. to some extent. Um, yeah. I also think that, I mean, by, I guess I'll say by 1775, you know, Boston is under siege and, and really becomes a refugee. Yeah. You know, Boston is occupied by the British. So she has to live in Providence. I think by the end of 1776, Uber Tanner has to leave Newport, uh, which ends up occupied for three years for Worcester, Massachusetts. So... You know, I think that to some extent, you know, I think that it can be of the extent material hard to know exactly where we we land when it comes to the war. If we make the war almost too binary, patriot versus loyalist, it's not entirely clear. You know, the attestation at the front of the poems includes loyalists and patriots alike. By 1776, she's written a letter where she talks about her anxiousness around the fact that the war is happening. She's also very concerned about what's going on in Newport, which is kind of getting consistently bombed as she writes to to Tanner. You know, I think that she laments as she says what's happening to, to Tanner in Newport. So I think that what's most important to remember is that it's a war. So even though I can't necessarily say like, oh, Phyllis Wheatley was a New England patriot, with certainty, what seems very apparent to me is that it is troubling, it's disturbing, it is terrifying to live through this war in a place where the war is actually happening. Yeah, And she's not in the hinterlands. She is where the battles are happening and her communities of friends are where the battles are happening. Right. Yeah, we tend to forget that, I think, sometimes when we look back in history and and just want to say, was this person on, uh, philosophically, where were they in terms of the, yeah. the issues at stake? And we forget that for them, it might be something like, well, even if I'm on one side or the other, I could be hungry this winter uh, no matter which side yeah. I'm on and which side is winning, or I could lose yeah. a loved one, or my house could, you know, not have a roof or that kind of thing. But I haven't read those letters. It must be striking to to read her experience in real time. Now, we also write about the pleasure she took in the sale of her books and the news of that. So what was yes. what was happening there? I should first say it's the 250th anniversary mm. of Wheatley's poems this year. They were published in 1773 and, you know, mm. 2023. The math checks out. So I think that Wheatley is very intentional about getting her book published and very intentional about making sure that it is sold 
and even more intentional about making sure that it's sold in such a way that she gets her money for the sale of the books. And this is another play for Uber Tana ends up being a key character. So there are a couple letters to Tanner and a couple other folks too, where she talks about making sure that her books aren't, you know, she she doesn't use this word, but it's one that will mean something to us, but she wants to make sure that her books aren't bootlegged, that she can get the money for kind of real copies. You know, I think she is often sending books to Uber Tanner so that she can sell them and, and makes note of receiving the money from Tanner as well. Mm. Uh, she also knows Uber Tanner's pastor, Reverend Samuel Hopkins. I think Reverend Hopkins is also part of the the Newport community that sells of Wheatley's books. So it is absolutely the case that she wants to make sure that she gets her books sold and gets the money for those books as well. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick break and then come back with more. I want to ask you more about Uber Tanner. Okay. Okay, we are back with Dr. Tara Bynum. Dr. Bynum, you went looking for Uber Tanner. I am fascinated by this person as you've described her so far and who she was and and how she came to play this role in the life and career of Phyllis Wheatley. Why did you go looking for her and what did you find? So Uber Tanner, I think, is, I'll say, interlocutor for Mm -hmm. anyone who works on Wheatley. So she shows up, at least for me, in the back of the Penguin edition of Wheatley's collected writing, kind of as the the person that I think she writes to the most. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until recently, and I think that this is still an important piece of the story. It wasn't until recently that I got to actually paying attention to a a footnote in the proceedings of the Massachusetts Historical Society that explains the provenance of the Wheatley correspondence with Tanner. And, you know, I think the provenance offers the, like, how did the Massachusetts Historical Society get these letters? And it hit me that the Massachusetts Historical Society gets the letters because Uber Tanner has saved them. And Uber Tanner has saved them for about 50 or more years. Mm, And in the 1830s, she gives them to her pastor's wife, Catherine Eads Beecher. And Catherine Eads Beecher, for reasons that I'm not clear about, gives them to her nephew-in-law. The nephew-in-law gives them to the Massachusetts Historical Society. And, you know, I think that when I finally sat with Tanner's decision to keep the letters and then to give the letters, here she is kind of maintaining her own archive of Wheatley things and makes the choice to give this particular set of letters to Catherine East Beecher. And in so doing, you know, I think that there's a whole nother point of entry into Phyllis Wheatley's life. And one that not only remembers Wheatley, but also remembers Uber Tanner as right. well. Right. So in saving the correspondence with Wheatley, she also is making herself part of the historical record. And the letters from Uber Tanner to Wheatley are not presently extant. And, you know, I think there's a whole conversation that we can have about why that would be true. But I think there's something very powerful about the choice for Uber Tanner to kind of keep this archive, keep this, keep these Wheatley holdings and to know 
when she's an elderly woman to give give these letters away to a person who'll know to keep them. Yeah. So there's something powerful in that. And that is a part of what has me begin to ask questions about Tanner. And I think another question that emerges is if Wheatley is the poet, what sort of artist might Uber Tanner have been? Mm. Creative writers, I think, are always sharing and workshopping their work. So is there another set of letters that are no longer extant that might be Wheatley poems, but also that might be Tanner poems? Or what other ways are they kind of possibly sharing? And, And are there glimpses of that sharing in the letters that are presently extant. There's some things that are unknowable about Tanner as of now, but I think that there are other details that do kind of come out by way of where she shows up. She ends up being kind of president of the Women's Auxiliary Organization of the Free African Union Society in the 1810s. She ends up a refugee in Worcester, Massachusetts, but returns to Newport thereafter, she gets married to a man named Barry Collins. So there are small and, and big details about her life that emerge, but she's still somebody that I'm on the hunt for, you know? Yeah. I think there's still way more to her her story, but I think she ends up in the shadow of Wheatley, who has a Library of Congress subject heading, mm-hmm. is this year alone having all manner of celebration in honor of her collection of poems, you know, but over Tanner is less success. Yeah. We're so familiar with the story of Phyllis Wheatley and the the letters from George Washington and and so on. She was a celebrity Mm -hmm. in her own life. But the idea that Uber Tanner was helping her sell her books was completely new to me. And it it makes me wonder, was Uber Tanner, do we know anything about how she got to that position of her educational background or just her life story or anything? Or is it kind of like what we have is the letters that Wheatley wrote to her and and then a few other references, as you mentioned, for positions she held? In Newport, which in the 18th century, especially mid the Revolutionary War, 18th century is a kind of booming port town. So Newport has a fairly large Portuguese Jewish community. It also has a somewhat sizable Black community as well. And, you know, I think it's in this space, there emerges these schools, like the one that Sarah Osborne kind of informally put together. And Sarah Osborne, who is a white woman in Newport, who educates all sorts of Newport residents, including the Black community. So I can't necessarily say that Uber Tanner learns to read because Sarah Osborne has like an informal school that that educates Black children and Black adults. I'm not certain of that for sure, but I, I guess what has become apparent to me is that there is an educated Black community in Newport, Rhode Island. So I don't think that Uber Tanner's literacy would be as interesting, hmm. maybe in 18th century Newport as it is to us now. Yeah, right. We can see how it could have happened. Yeah. And the larger kind of Black community that I have been exploring in Newport, it, the folks that seem to run in the same circle with Tanner and Wheatley are literate Black people. So I'm thinking about Caesar Linden, I'm thinking about 
John Kwamina and Zingo Stevens. There are also a couple other names that I could include too. So, you know, I think that there's there's a lot of reading and potentially a lot of writing happening. And mm-hmm. that is in part what makes this Newport community so kind of fascinating to me. Yeah. Okay, so let's turn to some of the other people in your book. We can just go with the next one, or we could we could talk about them kind of together. They were both ministers, but John yeah. Morant and James Albert Yukasa Groniosa. What did you find in their works that was different from how people might have been looking at the the memoir and the narrative that they've written? I think what struck me as compelling about their narrative in this context that I was working with is their Christian faith. I Mm. wanted to take their Christian faith seriously. You know, I did not want to think of Christianity as being imposed upon them. But in fact, I wanted to think of it as a way to make meaning in a very real way and a way for them to access joy. Mm. And I think that there's a whole nother kind of conversation that that has happened and can happen about the Black community's relationship to Christianity during slavery and whether it was imposed upon them or whether or not they wanted to be Christian. But I think that for me, what what felt compelling was to kind of take seriously the fact that they, they've written what are conversion narratives in some respect, form itself that kind of is deeply biblical. And, you know, kind of in, in choosing that, that particular genre, there was, to me, an, an, an even greater demonstration of their Christian faith. And I guess I wanted to get at, by way of their respective narratives, the intersection of having faith and the joy of that faith. Mm-hmm. What does it actually mean to believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and can, in fact, save you? What does it mean to believe that there's a God that is greater than man? men in, in any way, any human being, despite what social convention might say, despite what 18th century natural science might argue for as well. Yeah. It is unfortunate that religion kind of plays this role. You can see it in different settings as well, where people will, will take someone who is religious and and who centers their life around that and and maybe treat them like a dupe or like you're you're somebody who fell for it almost as if they're not making choices or as if the experience isn't something they're sincere about because instead they're just had something like you said imposed on them and i can see where by taking their life seriously and their views seriously and their writing seriously you would be able to kind of access a different picture of them that's not a 21st century view looking back, but one that would have been real and alive for them when they were holding those views. Yeah. And I think that that really was my goal. You know, I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't you know, judging them for their faith, but instead saying, what if this works? Mm. And why wouldn't it work? Because I'm going to take seriously the idea they believe their faith is working for them and that these are in fact their testimonies and demonstrations of how well they know their bible right okay and then we come to david walker 
the pamphleteer. David Walker. <laughs> yes. Okay. So what did you see there that is not typical from how he's usually uh, viewed and, and discussed? So let me first say, David Walker is my 19th century interloper. Anyone who knows me knows that I do not <laughs> like the 19th century, but David Walker snuck in. Okay. And <laughs> he snuck in because there was something curious to me when I read his particular pamphlet. And what I realized is that though he is known for his anger at slavery as an institution, and he's angry at the nation itself for having kind of slavery, I realized that the anger wasn't the whole story. Mm. Anger was not the beginning, middle, and end, but instead that anger was a tool for David Walker. And the point was to, to get his brethren, the Black people of the world, to understand that if they got angry enough, they could affect the kind of change that would transform the nation and they would be happier for it. And it was the, they would be happier for it. Happier because they used their, their anger to transform the country and to end slavery. The, the resulting nation would be so much better. And I was like, oh, you know, we don't talk about that part of the story. There's so much kind of about the anger. I mean, he's using these exclamation points. Shout out to Marcy Dinius for writing about that. He's clearly attentive to his typesetting. Mm. And I think that that is kind of what helps set the tone. But I think that upon reading even closer, that that's only one part of what David Walker is advocating for. Only one piece. The anger gets us started so that we can ultimately get to the joy of living in a country that actually lives up to its values. Mm, right. So he's he's giving it's it's the carrot as well as the stick. Yeah. And did he feel optimistic, would you say, or do you see the sense of eagerness and, you know, that he felt like this was going to be a world he would see and that it, it gave him hope and excitement? Or was he looking at it? Do you think he was describing it kind of as a an ideal that could help inspire, but maybe wasn't going to come to pass? So he has God on his side. Mm. So David Walker is certain that it will come to pass mm -hmm. because he has got on his side. So he is sure of himself. It's not a hope like it will never happen. It is a hope that is jointly with faith. He is certain that the world he envisions is possible because God is on his side and is on the side of his people. Mm. Okay. Well, you know, your book is not that long. I was surprised when I looked down at the, the page number that I was on that it it's it's not as thick as I thought it was because it's so rich with ideas and thoughts. I love books that, that make me think and make me think in new ways, and this book is certainly one of those. It's called Reading Pleasures, Everyday Black Living in Early America. Dr. Tara Bynum, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Yes, thanks so much for having me. This was such a great conversation. <laughs> Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Dr. Tara Bynum for joining me, for doing some good work and bringing us the news. Do check out her book, Reading Pleasures, Everyday Black Living in Early America. 
We have some good episodes in the works, including Willa Cather and her nearly forgotten but essential life partner. A new biography of William Faulkner, we'll be looking at that, talking to his biographer. Zora Neale Hurston is on our list. Catullus and Schopenhauer, that might be a, a duel just for us, a battle of the gloomy. Talk about Les Miserables. Nabokov and his trips to the cinema while in exile in Berlin is coming up. We'll be talking to an author of a, a book about that. Some Oscar Wilde nooks and crannies. Just when you thought you knew everything about good old Oscar. How many episodes have we done on him? Ten? <laughs> Just when you thought you knew it all, along comes a new figure who is worth our time. And of course, our big week, three episodes on Jane Austen's Persuasion is in the works. So please do subscribe to the podcast. That really helps us out. And... Come back and join us. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.